Wealth and poverty, what a topic. We look at the news, wars, economic competition, political systems, and you will find directly or indirectly, nearly all of them address the topic of wealth and poverty. We watch and we read about the rich and the poor and the growing disparity between them. Two weeks ago, Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, was denied a, 60, a $56 billion compensation package. Farmers are protesting their inability to earn a way, decent living. The Occupy Wall Street movement a number of years ago protested against economic inequality and the corruption of corporate law. Similar stories fill the news. On the personal side, missionary friends of ours struggle to raise support for their work of sharing the gospel. A poor friend of mine in Africa has a bad back and he can't work. He hasn't earned money in over a year. The medicine and the physical therapy um, that are prescribed for him each cost a month's salary every month. The surgery, if he can get it, will cost more than two years of his salary and the insurance pays less than half of it. In my work with Medair, I hear of the needs of people in crisis and amazing stories of courage, heroism, and kindness from Medair staff and volunteers, as well as from the people in need whom we serve. Every major decision we make these days has financial implications. What work should I do? For whom should I work? Where should I live? Where should we go on vacation? And how should I invest? I'd like to begin by defining what I mean by wealth and poverty, rich and poor. Wealth means having more material possessions than required to meet your needs and the, and the needs of those under your care. Poverty means having fewer material possessions than required to meet your needs and those in your care. So a rich person is wealthy and a poor person is in poverty. You and I happen to live in Switzerland, which is one of the wealthiest and highest income countries in the world. So whether you think of yourself as wealthy or not, you are, and this sermon is for you, as it is for me. All right, according to the, according to the World Bank, 84% of the world's population lives in less than $30 a day. 23% live in poverty, which is less than $5.5 a day, and 10% live in extreme poverty, defined as living in less than $2.15 per day. Poverty is hard, very hard. Poor parents can't feed their children or send them to school. The sick or the injured can't get the medical care they need. They are frequently in need and often struggle to survive, especially when a crisis hits. Most poor people in the world are not poor because they're lazy or don't work hard. In fact, the poor people I know work much harder and much longer than you or me. Their poverty comes largely from factors outside of their control, such as corruption, violence, culture, politics, disease, geography, and climate. As we read in Proverbs 13, 23, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit, but it is swept away through injustice. It seems to me that one of the most controversial issues about wealth and poverty is this. Is wealth a sign of moral corruption or a sign of wisdom 
virtue, and God's blessing. That is, are wealthy people generally and or always evil because they gain wealth by cheating, stealing, and oppression? Or are wealthy people generally or always good because they have integrity, work hard and clever, and are blessed by God? The Bible contains stories of both. Think about Job and Abraham on the one side, and the sons of Samuel, Zacchaeus the tax collector, and wealthy and powerful Israelites on the other. From these we see that wealth can come from virtue and God's blessing, and it can come from moral corruption. Well, that makes me feel better. I can be both wealthy and good and blessed by God. But if that's true, why did Agur, son of Jake, pray to God? Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. One, remove far from me falsehood and lying. And two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Instead, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full or rich and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Why did he say it? He said it because of the risk that when we are rich, we will no longer, or we will think we no longer need God. And why did Jesus say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven? His illustration tells me that it is extremely difficult to be wealthy and to be good and in right relationship with God. Or to put it another way, being rich is risky business. Do you like to do risky things? Parachuting? Wingsuit flying? Climbing Mount Everest? Breaking the sound barrier in a car? Or doing the cannonball run? Do you know what the cannonball run is? It's a race across America from New York to California as fast as one possibly can. The current record is 24 hours and 39, 25 hours and 39 minutes. And if you do the math, you'll find that's an average of 113 miles or 180 kilometers per hour. Thanks, Michael, for that bit of information. Um, if you're a reasonable person, you'd say to most of these things, that's too risky. I would never do it. But tell me, which of these has the lower probability of success than getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Do you still want to be wealthy? If so, let's take a look at what else Jesus said regarding the rich young man and what the book of Proverbs has to say. You know the story. A rich man came to Jesus and asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him to obey God's commandments. He replied that he did and asked what, what he still lacked. Then Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It seems that the young man's great possessions kept him from following Jesus. Jesus followed up this sad event by saying to his disciples, Truly I say to you, 
Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Using hyperbole, Jesus intended us to know that it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' astonished disciples asked him, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If it is possible with God for a rich person to enter the, into the kingdom of God, how can it be done? How can the camel get through the eye of the needle or the rich person get into the kingdom of heaven? So I'd like to answer these questions by exploring three themes addressed in the book of Proverbs. What we desire, how we get our wealth, and what we do with our wealth. The first question to ask regarding wealth is, where is your heart? Or what do you desire? Last week, Martin shared John D. Rockefeller's answer to the question, how much money is enough to make a man happy? A little more. The great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? in which the main character, a peasant named Pahom, is not satisfied with the land he is on. He moves several times to buy land and then to buy more land for himself. But each time it is not enough. And he hears of a place where he can get more land. Finally, he's told of the Bashkirs, a simple people from whom he can buy a lot of land cheaply. He goes to them with gifts and they agree to sell him as much land as he wants for a thousand rubles. They explain that the land he can get with a thousand rubles is the amount of land that he can walk around in one day. From sunrise to sunset. And if he doesn't get back to the starting point by sunset, he forfeits his money. Pahom sets off at the crack of dawn in a good mood, full of energy and confidence. However, greedy for more land, he walks too far. As the sun goes down, he desperately races against time to reach his starting point before the sunset. He runs as fast as he can to, quote, his heart beating like a hammer and his legs giving way as though they did not belong to him. In the end, he does, in fact, make it back just as the last glimmer of the sun sets over the horizon. But he so exhausts himself that he dies just after returning. The story concludes this way. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Should we desire wealth? I searched the Bible for verses that instructed a person and people to pursue material wealth or riches, and here's what I found. Um, is there something wrong with the slide? <laughs> I don't see anywhere in the Bible where someone or believers are specifically or generally told to pursue wealth or to desire to become materially rich. On the contrary, in many places, God tells us not to pursue wealth, but to seek other things. In Proverbs 3, 13-17, we read about the goodness of wisdom and how much better it is to have wisdom 
and to pursue wisdom than wealth. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare to her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Or more simply put, it is better, much better, to have wisdom and knowledge than gold and silver. So we should seek wisdom and knowledge rather than wealth. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus knew, and we need to know, that wherever the treasure, whatever we treasure, will sooner or later attract and capture our heart. Therefore, our treasure should be in heaven. Jesus continued, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If we can't serve both God and money, can we have money and serve God? Maybe, but if we love God, we will hate money. And if you have money, you know that it can become a demanding master of your time and energy. The more you have, the more time it takes, and the more it grows on you. When we have wealth, we risk up ending like the rich young man, choosing to keep our wealth rather than to follow Jesus. We need to choose Jesus or money. There's no in-between. Jesus continues with words for those who are devoted to him and who despise money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus tells us that life is more than the things we can buy with money. He reassures us that God, our Heavenly Father, knows that we need these things. And he promises that if we first seek to know and love God, to do good, to be good, and to become good, to proclaim the gospel, and to be agents of justice and mercy in this world, God will give us what we need in this life. It is hard, very hard, to be good and rich. To be rich and close to God, harder than the camel squeezing through the eye of a needle. We need to follow the fatherly advice of King Solomon to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The second point concerns how we get our wealth. On Friday evening, Regula, the boys and I watched the movie Hunger Games. It shows, how many of you watched Hunger, have seen Hunger Games? Okay, okay my family's raising their hands, yes, good. <clears throat> um, it shows the evil of the wealthy and powerful citizens who live in the capital and got or maintained their wealth by oppressing the poor and powerless who live in districts. What struck me in the movie was how the wealthy and powerful people 
in the capital didn't think that there was anything wrong with the oppression of the poor that allowed them to live in ostentatious luxury. Wealth made through injustice and oppression is broadly and rightly condemned by most in our society, but it still persists. But many who do it don't see it as wrong. The Bible also condemns wealth gained through evil. In Proverbs 16.8, we read, It is better to have a little honestly earned than to have a large income dishonestly gained. And whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth will only come to poverty. Basically, the message is, do not lie, cheat, steal, or oppress anyone to gain wealth. In the prophetic writings, this, express, this is expressed even more forcefully. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Along similar lines, Jeremiah writes, or warns, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Whatever investments we make and whatever income we get, it must not be through evil, injustice, or oppression. This includes not only our job, but our investment portfolio as well. We need to think about what companies we work for and invest in, and if what they sell and how they operate is righteous or not. Do I want, for example, to buy Meta stock, even if it gives great returns? Basically, we must not do anything that compromises our moral integrity. Another point worth mentioning on this topic concerns the amount of time and energy and attention that we give to acquiring our wealth. In Proverbs 23.4, we read, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Many other translations state, Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. That is, do not spend too much time and energy getting or managing wealth. This is one I can speak to from personal experience. I've been stressed about money, tracking daily, in times of crisis, the value of my investment portfolio. I did this around the time when the dot-com bubble burst, and it was depressing and to the extent that it caused me headaches and tiredness and has been bad for my health and well-being. It made me miserable and gloomy. I also spend more time, <clears throat> I have spent more time managing, than I, more time than I want on managing and growing my investments more time than I would like. It prevents me from spending time with God, with my family, with friends, enjoying creation or relaxing. I'm tempted to want more wealth, but I and you need to know when to say enough. While the Bible has a lot to say about what not to do, it says surprisingly little about what one should do to become wealthy apart from Pursue and find wisdom and work diligently. As we already read in Proverbs 3, we should pursue and find wisdom, for long life is in her hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Proverbs 10.4 tells us what common sense affirms. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And now we turn to the last point. What do we do 
Sorry, Martin. <laughs> it was in the Bible. <laughs> um, now we turn to the last point. What do we do with our wealth? And most everyone knows the Charles Dickens book, A Christmas Carol, and the main character, Ebenezer Scrooge. Dickens described him as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel has ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. He was very rich, greedy, and stingy, showing no compassion to at all to those in need, neither the two men who came into his office to ask for donations, nor to his employee, Bob Cratchit, and his lame son, Tiny Tim. Three ghosts visited him to warn him of dire consequences to himself and others of his sin. The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future showed Ebenezer Scrooge terrible things. He became convicted of his sin and began to be generous. This filled him and others with joy. In Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, we read, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Before we explore this message, the message of this proverb, let's hear what Jesus had to say about another man whose barns were overflowing. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Clearly, the rich man was condemned not for being wealthy, but for being greedy and thinking only of himself. Jesus taught that wealth is not just for me and my comfort and my enjoyment. With my wealth, I am called to be rich toward God and to the poor and needy. In his book, On Wealth and Poverty, St. John Chrysostom wrote, this is why God has allowed you to have more. Not for you to waste on prostitutes, drink, fancy food, expensive clothes, and all other kinds of indolence, but for you to distribute to those in need. Now, coming back to Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, the similarity between this proverb and Jesus' parable is striking and cannot be accidental. The rich man in Jesus' parable was condemned because he thought only of himself. On the other hand, when we honor God with our wealth and first fruits, our barns will be full. The abundance that was wrong for the selfish rich man is a blessing for the one who honors God with his wealth and the first fruits of all he produces. But what does it mean to honor God with our wealth and the first fruits of all we produce? 
In the Old Testament, it meant paying tithes and offerings and helping the poor and needy. In our time, honoring God with your wealth and first roots means giving first, giving to your church. Second, giving to organizations, ministries, missionaries that spread the gospel and or that work for the benefit of the poor and needy. And third, sometimes it means giving directly to the poor and needy. Giving regularly and generously to one's local church is probably the closest equivalent to the tithe and the offering. It allows the church to operate, to serve the congregation, and to reach out with the gospel. And it's not optional. We should also give to... We should also give to Christian ministries and other organizations, such as we just heard about this morning from Doug, and support missionaries that spread the gospel and or that serve the poor and needy. At the same time, we also have a responsibility to care for and to stand up for the poor and the needy whom we know or know of. The book of Proverbs draws a connection between giving to the poor and our relationship with God. If you oppress poor people, you insult God who made them. But kindness shown to the poor is an act of worship. Let us worship God by being generous to the poor and needy. Proverbs 21.13 states, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. If we want help from God, we must help the poor. In Proverbs 19.17, we read, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Being generous to the poor is like giving God a loan, and God will pay back with interest. How does God repay us? In Luke 6.38-39, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, Will be, poured, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If we are stingy, God will be stingy with us. If we are generous in giving to the church, to missions, and to the poor and needy, God will be generous with us. Let us also not forget from Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, that when we care for the poor and the needy, we are somehow also caring for him. When I think about giving to the poor and needy, I often wonder, how do I know when I'm giving enough? I think the answer has something to do with what I'm giving <clears throat> up in order to give to someone in need. In Luke 21, 1-4, we read, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw the poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. God doesn't usually ask us to give everything we have to live on. However, if my, own, if my giving only comes out of my excess abundance, and if I don't even notice it, then it's not sacrificial. 
If my giving doesn't impact what kind of home I own or rent, or where I go on vacation, or the toys I buy for myself, or my unexpected retirement income, I wonder, is it enough? When I help people in need, I know that my gift may make the difference between someone going to school or not, between someone having a home or not, between someone eating or not, between someone getting medical care or not. And this brings me and them joy. You and I, you can be the answer to someone's prayer. Whether you give to your church, a Christian ministry, a poor person in crisis, or a poor person with ambitions for a better life. Your generosity can allow other people to hear and respond to the gospel. Your gift can provide theological education for pastors. Or you can have a nicer home, a nicer car, a more expensive vacation, nicer clothes, and a larger investment portfolio that requires more time and attention, but may not actually be of any use to you because you have enough already. If you want to be more generous, but don't know where to begin or grow, you can give or give more to us like church or to ministries that the church supports or to other organizations, ministries and missionaries that you know or know of. And if you do help the poor directly, I recommend first reading the book, When Helping Hurts, which provides valuable guidance on not making things worse when you try to help. In conclusion, we can say that to be wealthy is risky business. We who are wealthy are tempted to think we do not need God. We are tempted to keep and grow our wealth at the expense of our moral integrity and our walk with God. We are tempted to prioritize money over God and people with disastrous consequences. It is possible for us, the rich, to enter the kingdom of heaven if we do it with God. But we need to make sure our heart is in the right place. We need to get our wealth with integrity. And we need to give generously to God's work and to those in need. Maybe God will ask you to become poor by giving all you have to the poor and needy, and then to follow him in a new and deeper way. If he does ask you to become poor, and you do, know that there is great reward in it, and that you are imitating Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. More likely, he will ask you each day to do these three things, which are also written, though in a slightly different sequence, in Micah 6.8, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God.